You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Well, good morning. How's everyone? Good. My name's Hank Atchison. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Church. We're really glad that you're with us. Um, if you have your Bible or your device, you can go ahead and open that to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We're going to cover that chapter in its entirety uh, today. And if, if you're new to us, so, so what we do here is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so we started in the book of Acts back on Easter. And Lord willing, we'll finish the book of Acts next Easter. And so chapter 12 is where we find ourselves uh, this morning. We, we do believe that this is the appropriate way to handle the Word of God because it gives us the whole counsel of God and also uh, re- really leaves no rock unturned. Um, it forces us to address the more difficult sections of Scripture um, and in turn, all of us become more whole disciples of the word. And so in Acts chapter 12, um, it, it, it really is an interesting turn. Um, we're going to see some, one of our main characters, who, who is Peter, sort of fade out after Acts chapter 12. Um, he has been really the primary leader of the first church since Pentecost as he preached the message at Pentecost. And the Lord birthed what is now uh, still and still today the New Testament church. And so when we get to Acts chapter 12, we're going to see the persecution continue. Um, It even gets really intense here. And Stephen, if you remember back in Acts chapter 6, who was the first martyr for the gospel, he was not an apostle, but he was the first martyr for the gospel, who had just been appointed as a deacon, actually predicted that this persecution would continue. But the primary reason for the persecution up to this point, there's really two reasons. The primary reason is that the Gentiles are now receiving the gospel and believing the gospel, and there are Jewish believers and Gentile believers that are shoulder to shoulder as if the last 1,200 years didn't happen. And, and some of the staunch Jews just have a hard time understanding and, and really receiving these new Gentile believers. And so for Herod, who's going to be sort of one of the main characters this morning, is, is he is one of the leaders in the Jewish community. In fact, the leader in the Jewish community. He also has a problem with this uh, new Gentile fellowship, but he also has another problem. And his other problem is the fact that he sees his power slipping away. Okay, so there's two primary problems within these Jewish communities of these Christians. The first one is that the Gentiles are being welcomed in. And the second one is, is these leaders sense the grasp of their power being loosened. And so what we'll do this morning, we're going to do like we have been. We're going to read through this a section at a time. We're going to read through 1 through 5 and we'll, I'll, I'll give you some commentary. And then we're going to look at 6 through 19. And then we're going to finish up in 20 through 25. And we'll stop after each section and sort of have some takeaways and some application. And so look down with me. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Verse 5. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. A couple of characters, one I've mentioned. The first is, is Herod. Herod 
was the king of Judea. He loved the law, but he also loved the praise he received from the people. And so Herod's primary motivation in this is that he loves the praise of the people. He likes the way that praise from others makes him feel. He likes the feeling of having the power that other people gathering and rallying around him and his command. He, he loves that, and that's ultimately what he's after. And so Herod sees an easy way to gain favor with the people and also, at the same time, remove the threat of losing more power to this new movement. And the first thing we see him do, uh, well, well, first it's general that he lays violent hands on some who belong to the church, and then verse 2 is just really matter-of-fact. He kills James. This James was the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. He was one of the first disciples that Jesus himself called. There were three co-equals, if you will, that were the main pastors and leaders and elders in the church of Jerusalem. And it was Peter, and it was James, and it was John. And so this James is a big deal. This, this guy has been used by God tremendously. He's been chosen by Jesus personally. He's seen the resurrected Lord. James is an apostle. He is one of those who was commissioned and commanded by Jesus himself in his resurrected state to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I don't know about you, but I, I, like I read that and I'm like, man, hey, give him a little more. Right? I mean, just verse 2 is just, he's dead. He's killed. Well, Herod, by killing James, gets what he wants. He gains the approval he desires, if you noticed, in verse 3. And when he saw that it, it, that is the murder of James, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so he's killed James, and now he goes, hey, that made people really, really happy, and I like when people are happy with me, and so I'm going to go after Peter as well. The problem with not killing Peter immediately is, is because it's this Passover celebration. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is this week-long celebration, and it was unlawful, according to Jewish law, to execute anyone during this time. And so the plan would have been to incarcerate Peter, and if you noticed, this, this dude's in maximum security prison. Maximum security. You would think, you would think that he was a, a wanted murderer. You would think that he was actually a threat to the community. Because that's the kind of people that found themselves in, in this type of confinement. And so, because the Passover was near and it was unlawful to execute on the Passover, he, he places Peter in maximum security prison. Something to note is that this is the same group of Jews that hated Jesus. And, and so what, what can be confusing to us, we're going, hey, okay, you don't like what they believe. Is killing them and incarcerating them, like is all of this necessary? Keep in mind, this is the same group of people that as Barabbas, who was an, a convicted murderer, a known murderer, and Jesus were their choices... And the leader looks at the crowd and says, who do you want us to release, Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas being the murderer. And they choose to release Barabbas. They genuinely believe that the streets were safer with Jesus being incarcerated than with the murderer, Barabbas, being let free. It's that kind of logic. Like, like, so there's, 
obviously something else going on. There are deeper dynamics here than just what we can see with our own physical eyes or from a human standpoint. There's something obviously and definitely spiritual that's going on here. But the main issue for them in the first few verses is this Gentile fellowship and then also the leaders did not want to lose power. Peter is guarded by what seems to be 16 soldiers. Possibly four of which that are chained to him as he has been stripped naked. He's in this inner cell with four soldiers in there with him that he's chained to. There's keepers on the outside of the cell. There's also an iron gate. They're taking no chances on Peter's escape. Humanly speaking, there's no chance Peter actually escapes. And verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, and it's for this week-long duration. But, I love this, earnest prayer. Earnest, this word, or a form of this word, just to kind of connect some dots of what's going on emotionally and spiritually, is, is the same type word used to describe the prayer of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he began to feel, in in the garden of the olive press, the the weight and the sin of the world began to press down on him. And and the burden of what he was going to endure at Calvary was coming on him. Scripture says that even like drops of blood came from his pores like sweat. That's the type of earnestness that they're praying to the Lord with. Verse 6 says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, so, so Peter has been imprisoned for a week. It's the last hour. Like, like it's, this is it. In the morning, the Passover is finished and Peter can be killed. Okay, so they've prayed all week from what we can understand. Peter's been imprisoned all week from what we can understand. And it says in verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring them out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Luke is emphasizing how this is maximum security. Verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. Now, it's okay to see some comedy in this, because some of it's funny. I want to see if you notice. So an angel comes, and he struck Peter on the side, and woke him, saying, get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. First of all, the dude's obviously exhausted. But you guys, I, I'm just a little insight on, on me. Not that you care, but just to illustrate. Like, I'm such a light sleeper. Like, I can hear anything, and it wakes me up. My wife, on the other hand, my wife, on the other hand, can sleep through sermons. She can sleep through TV shows. She can sleep through thunderstorms, tornadoes, hurricanes, kids who are having bad dreams. She can sleep through at all. And so to me, I'm looking at this going, like the angel had to jab him in the side to wake him up. He, he definitely has a little bit of Charlie in him. In verse 8, and the angel said to him, because he has no clothes on, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. In verse 9, and, and he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So essentially... He, he thinks he's hallucinating or seeing a vision or more than likely dreaming. He's like, he thinks this is a dream of his escape. Verse 10, but when they had passed the first and second guard, 
They came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And by the way, just a side note, what, what most tradition tells us is the, these iron gates were so large that it would take a couple of mules to be hooked to the gate to even pull it open. Humans themselves, without eight or ten grown men, couldn't budge the gate. And so, when they passed, verse 10, the second guard that came to the iron gate leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door, this is some more, I think, comic relief. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy... She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You, little Rhoda, are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. Like, like that's their logic at this point. Like, th this can't be Peter. There's no possible way that Peter has been rescued. There's no possible way that he escaped. Now again, that's going to tell us something in a little while because even though they were praying earnestly for the Lord to do what only the Lord could do, brothers and sisters, they weren't expecting it. It doesn't mean they didn't keep crying out, but they weren't expecting the Lord to rescue Peter. But look at verse 16. <laughs> but Peter continued knocking. Rhoda, come back. Like It really is... Me. And, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord, oh, can you imagine? You could probably drop a, you could hear a needle drop in that room. And he said, sorry, verse 17, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. This is a different James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. This is not the James that was just killed. And to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance, of course, obviously, among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So a few takeaways and a couple points of application in verses 6 through 19. I, I, I love, this is one of the things I love most about the book of Acts is that it's a narrative that we can follow and that we can understand. Even though there are lots of questions, it's still easy for us to grasp what exactly is going on. And I think there's some really clear applications. And the first one is this. Deliverance comes on God's time. Now, this isn't the primary point of this section but it is something to notice that the Lord saved Peter. He rescued Peter. He delivered Peter at really the last moment. And so they had continued to pray and to pray and to pray and to pray and to pray. And it was the eve before he would have been killed that the Lord rescued him. He was in prison the whole week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Lord waited until the last night. It's often that the Lord 
makes us wait. And I think the most important thing for us to understand, if you're in a season right now where you're going, Hank, I, like, I've been waiting and waiting, is that He is working. The waiting doesn't mean that God's idle. Even our idleness, which is frustrating at times for us, like, what am I supposed to do? Because we don't know what to do because we're waiting on who? We're waiting on the Lord. But in our idleness, the Lord is never idle. He's always working in every single thing that comes our way. And every moment that we wait, according to Scripture, is for our good and is a part of our being molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. The waiting has purpose. Sometimes we see it, the purpose that is, and sometimes we do not. But God doesn't reveal His moment-by-moment plans for our lives. To be clear, brothers and sisters, according to Scripture, there is a moment-by-moment plan for our lives. Psalms 139 is a place you can see that clearly. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9 are places you can see that clearly. But just because there is an ordained plan for our lives, it doesn't mean that God tells us those things. And so what does that require of us? Anybody want to take a stab at it? All those things. I heard patience, trust, and faith. The answer to that is yes. But where I wanted us to land is faith. Faith. That's the point. Anything that pushes us towards the Lord and having to depend on Him and trust Him to be who He says He is and to do what He said He'll do is the point. Faith is the point. And so in this life, in this life, until as we sang earlier, until we see Jesus face to face, faith is always going to be a factor and a part of our lives. Which requires us trusting in and believing in what we cannot see. If you want to jot down Romans 8, 28, it's a familiar passage, but it's a good one to go back to where the Apostle Paul says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So the first thing I noticed was deliverance comes on God's time. The second thing I noticed is earthly, de- earthly deliverance is God's decision. Now, um, I-, I think Peter's rescue speaks for itself, okay? And I'm not making light of that, and I'm going to speak a little bit to that. But let's go back to verse 2. Because verse 2, as I mentioned, is so matter-of-fact. In that James is killed by Herod, and James' death sets the stage for Peter's dramatic prison rescue by the angel. And in fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the um, apostle Peter says, he says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Now, in, in this particular context, he's talking about some of the Old Testament saints, but surely he had in mind what the Lord had done for him on this night in this prison, as he remembers that the Lord knows how to rescue and the Lord can rescue and that's an important thing for us to understand is that if we're not rescued it's not because he can't because he knows how and can rescue but for James the angel didn't come 
Is that the elephant in the room? Right? Peter gets the press. Peter's like, we're high-fiving about this rescue. Maximum security. How in the world did this happen? Oh, man, look at the Lord. So amazing. The people are praying. What about James? (laughs) Can you relate? Is it confusing for you to consider those that you have seen rescued? And you've already been through something that God didn't bring the earthly deliverance or rescue that you desired. The truth is, is that Jesus allowed the sword to fall on James as intentionally as he opened Peter's prison door. So the death of James is as crucial for us to remember as the rescue of Peter. So question, why did God let James die? Well, I was reminded of Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn there. And and I want to encourage you, if you haven't read Hebrews 11 before or you haven't in a while, I I, I encourage you to go back and read through Hebrews 11 because Hebrews 11 um, is where the writer of Hebrews reminds us basically of church history and, and all of the biblical history of all of those who have gone before us and serve as this great cloud of witnesses. So all those mentioned in Hebrews 11 are those men and women and families that we can look back to and we can recognize their faith and see their faith. Well, a large part of Hebrews 11 mentions people like Abraham and Sarah, who we certainly should you know, see their faith and try to recognize their faith and acknowledge their faith and, and see their faith as exemplary. But, but they actually saw these miracles, like they saw deliverance. They uh, conceived a child at a very, very old age. It, it was something that was miraculous. They saw Isaac rescued um, by the ram. So God provided something for Isaac. It mentions Moses. It mentions Joseph, who are men who certainly had faith, but they really saw God do these tremendous things. And I'm, I'm not taking away from that, but if I'm honest... And, and like try to be as objective and fair as possible, I read the stories about these Old Testament saints, and I'm like, well, yeah, Moses had faith. He met with God on Mount Sinai. Of course, he, he saw the plagues come down. Well, at the end of Hebrews 11, and, and I wonder if this is where the writer is headed, in verse 35... It begins this way with another. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, we're going, hey, sign me up for that, right? But in the same verse, in the very next sentence, it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release. All right, so remember, we're trying to answer the question. Why did the angel not come for James? Why did God let James die? Well, this is our first clue. Because some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that, for the purpose of, so that they might rise again, here's our clue, to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. You, I mean, you don't see plagues, you know, I mean, you don't see this divine intervention coming in and saving those who suffered this mocking and flogging and chains. Listen to verse 37. Some, they were stoned, they were, are you ready? Sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. 
But listen to verse 39. And all these, from Moses all the way to the ones that we just read about, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided... Listen, here's our clue. This is more than a clue. This is the answer. God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Jesus let James die because his work here was done. And he had a better life to give him. And so what I want to try to push us towards this morning is to celebrate the deliverance of Peter, but to see the deliverance of James as the ultimate, primary, long-awaited deliverance. Because Peter was rescued to die again. Even though James fell victim to Herod's sword, because of Jesus Christ and because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, at the, the instant that James breathed his last breath in his physical body, he entered into, he, he entered into a spiritual reality that was more life than he'd ever lived, more peace than he'd ever felt, more comfort than he'd ever seen because of who Jesus is and what he's done. James was not neglected by Jesus. In fact, James was the first of the disciples to experience what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, verse 24. Je Jesus prays the night before he's betrayed, Father, I desire that they, speaking of his disciples, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. In James's life, the prayer of Jesus is answered. There will come a day, if you've trusted Christ this morning, there will come a time when Jesus' prayer for us to be with him will overrule our prayers for prolonged life. There will come a day for all of us that Jesus' prayer for his own, that he's died for and rescued, his prayer for us to be with him will overrule our prayers for prolonged life and earthly deliverance. And it's in that moment that we will experience a life so far better, a life so much more rich, so much more full and pure and more joyful than we had ever known. And so if you're a note taker, I want you to jot down that James in Acts 12, he had the better deliverance at this point. Now, some, some might think that when earthly deliverance doesn't come, that it's always because of a lack of faith. And someone might say, well, well, maybe James didn't have the faith that Peter had, or, or maybe it's because the believers, and I, this is, I'm not buying this, maybe it's because the believers weren't praying for James, and, and, and one slipped up on God. Like the enemy, Herod, somehow was just a little bit more crafty than the Lord, and the Lord wasn't prepared, and so the Lord's protection was removed from James because he just missed it. 
But it sure seems like those who are earnestly praying for Peter's deliverance are surprised that God gave it. You remember that. That's why I emphasized that earlier, because we can't say, oh, well, it's because they named it and they claimed it. Named what? And claimed what? They thought Rhoda, little Rhoda was crazy. He said, Rhoda, run along now. We're going to keep praying for Peter's rescue. And the rescued Peter was at the door, knocking. And so again, look, this doesn't mean that we don't pray for earthly, um, earthly deliverance. 100% we pray for earthly deliverance. But God is not this rabbit's foot that we rub. Like there's no superstition in God. There's nothing about our prayers or what we do or our actions that manipulate the sovereign decreed plan and will of God. Prayer, prayer in its most basic fundamental definition is when God's people acknowledge him as God, and we scream for help. That's what they're doing. Help. For a week, day in and day out, Lord, help. You're the only one that can rescue him. We don't know what life would be like without him. Would you save him? And the Lord did. There was an earthly deliverance, and praise be to him for that. But that earthly deliverance is a pointer and a sign of the greater deliverance that James experienced in verse 2. Which leads to the third application of this first section. Prayer was a means God used to deliver Peter. Some things to jot down about prayer, and as we understand prayer, they prayed, and I'm emphasizing this because Wednesday night we come together at 5.30 and we pray together. They prayed together. They prayed earnestly. So they prayed together. They prayed earnestly. They prayed specifically. And I do believe this shows the importance of prayer and how it works in God's providence. The Lord has ordained the end, which has to mean that the Lord also ordains the means to bring about the end. Prayer is a means. Prayer is a tool or an instrument that God uses to bring about His decreed will. And so, I know there's still a lot of questions about why we pray if God is sovereign. Like, what's the point? Like, like, like I get all that. But really, if you just slow down and try to just back up and say, Okay, look, God's ordained the end. Therefore, God's ordained the means, so He's ordained the prayer that brings about His ordained desired, what? End. Now, again, I'm not saying I understand everything about this, but it seems to be what Scripture clearly teaches, and it seems to be that this is what the Bible teaches us it means for God to be God. That He is in control. That He didn't miss something with James. That James' purpose was fulfilled. And James entered into eternal life. Part of Peter's purpose was to be rescued from that prison. And he was going to be. Amen. Herod wasn't going to keep him. And if you want the overall point of this passage, as we'll see in a second, this is really a showdown between Herod and God. That's what this is. Herod thinking he's the stuff. God letting him know he ain't. Now let's move on to that part. Verses 20 through 25. 
Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. If you remember last week when, when Pastor Dolan taught, he, he mentioned that um, it, it was prophesied that there was going to be a famine in Judea. Well, that's happened. Well, Herod is now angry with these two other leaders because um, evidently there has been um, some manipulation and some bribery that's happened for everybody wanting this food. And so there's a conflict between these countries. And verse 21 says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Again, like if you if you... Don't slow down in Scripture. You kind of miss because Luke's brilliant. I mean, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, but he, he's wanting us to notice these details. Herod thinks he is the man. And so Herod puts on his royal robes, took his seat, listen, friends, upon the throne and delivered an oration to them, just like he'd always practiced and had always done. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And man, you talk about a hard shift to verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. You see the showdown, right? Herod, he wants to stop the gospel's advance. And as soon as he stands up and acts as if he is God seeking the glory that only God deserves, he's struck down and he's eaten by worms by God. And what continues? The work of God. He goes on to say, verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. That concludes our time lord willing we'll pick up in 13 next week three things to leave with first first is this god is due all the glory i don't know if you've noticed this about your heart yet i've noticed it about mine on the regular okay i want us to be honest like we like glory we seek glory we like to be praised we have a lot in common with herod and that we like it when people like us. And sometimes we'll do whatever we have to do in order to get people to praise us and to glory in us. The angel of the Lord turns up twice in this chapter. The first time to rescue Peter. And the second time right in the middle of one of Herod's lavish demonstrations of his self-gross exaltation. He crosses the line of God's patience. And make no mistake that this is an example to everyone who will listen that God and not Herod is to be honored and glorified. And if a man lifts himself up against God, he loses. Listen, listen, every time, every single time. And so even though God doesn't strike those down like he did Herod, Every single time, in the instant, every single time, God wins. And so, it's insane. It is absolutely insane to commit treason against the creator of the universe. It's insane. 
And so, like, I, I know we're probably thinking of all these other people that need to hear this, right? But what I want us to do, I want us to start with ourselves. That, that's the appropriate way. That's the appropriate way to move out of these kind of things. That's what Jesus means when he says, take the log out of your eye before you help remove the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. Okay, so we have to recognize that our thoughts and feelings of self-exaltation, self-righteousness, self-glory are just as wicked as Herod's. He just happened to have the platform for it. And now, a lot of us do. With our posts, with our whatever. We all have a platform. And if social media has taught us anything, it's that we really all love praise. We really all love glory. We really all love attention. And so let's start with ourselves and recognize that what is most wicked about our hearts is that we want the glory that only God deserves. And those who ultimately stand against the glory of God and seek after the glory of God, they will lose. In fact, they've already lost and they will realize this loss at some point in redemptive history. Second, man, this is great. The gospel is unstoppable. Not only can you not stop God, but brothers and sisters, say amen after this. You can't stop as people. You cannot. The gospel is not going to be stopped. How many chapters have we already been through that if it was going to be stopped, it would have been stopped? From self-inflicted wounds, from outside persecution, the gospel is unstoppable. It's not stopping. It's not stopping then. It's not stopping anytime soon. In fact, it made its way from Acts chapter 12 all the way to who? us it's unstoppable the goal the goal of all that god does is to spread the fame of his son who saves sinners and glorifies the lord lastly this story illustrates the spiritual deliverance through the gospel i think this story is a picture peter was in a situation Humanly speaking, that was hopeless. He was in chains, shackled. Guards for days. Big, giant iron gates, only to face condemnation and punishment. He had no way to get out of the mess that he was in. And spiritually speaking, that's what Scripture teaches us about our own Sin nature is, is that outside of the grace of God, outside of the rescue of God, we are spiritually locked down. Like we are in chains. We're in bondage. There are guards everywhere. There's a big old mean, powerful ruler. Right? There's a big old mean, powerful ruler that has dominions and armies and forces. He's working against us, but he's not our worst enemy. Our worst enemy is our own flesh that, that, that bites the bait that he gives. Right? And so temptation is there, and the Bible teaches that from a spiritual standpoint, we have no ability in and of ourselves for escape or rescue. All we have is need. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says to Eve, through your offspring, there will be redemption. You will bruise his heel, but I will crush his head. In Acts chapter 12, what we see is Peter saved. 
And all of the forces of evil that came against him weren't strong enough to keep his rescuer away. When God goes after you, he gets you. And if he's after you this morning, surrender. Lay it down. Lay it down. Lay it down and receive rescue. Because all we have is need. And God has all we need. And so if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ this morning, see this as a picture. Like, it's, it's hard to hear. It's, it's difficult to understand. But if you haven't trusted Jesus, you are in the same shape that Peter was in when he was incarcerated. Guards everywhere. No way out. With no hope. What's going on? What's happening? And if you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, and ask him to save you. At that point he has. He has. Would you look to him. And to him alone. To be saved. Let's pray. Father I thank you for your. We'd like to thank you for listening. To the sermon audio. From Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.